0: In his famous novel, Gulliver's Travel, uh, the the author and Christian minister, Jonathan Swift, takes his protagonist, Lemuel Gulliver, to the island of Lugnag. Uh, And there he encounters the Strollbergs, who are immortal. And about that he writes, he's delighted, Happy nation where every child hath at least a chance for being immortal happy people who being born exempt from that universal calamity of human nature have their minds free and disengaged without the weight and depression of spirits caused by the continual apprehensions of death. Then the Gulliver's interpreter acknowledges that it is true that long life is the universal desire and wish of mankind, that whoever had one foot in the grave was sure to hold back the other as strongly as he could, that the oldest had still hopes of living one day longer and looked on death as the greatest evil from which nature always prompted him to retreat. Unfortunately for the Strollbergs, even though they're immortal, uh, they uh, still age, Um, so they basically have eternal uh, senility, right? I mean, they're senile for the rest of their lives. And, uh, so, but, but, of course, that's not what we long for. But it's true, isn't it, that we long for eternal life. It's found in every culture. Uh, it's, it's, it's seen, really, in every religion. Uh, it's, but it's not the kind of eternal senility of the Strollbergs, but eternal life, something vibrant that lasts forever, so Solomon writes about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has put eternity into man's heart. But how do we attain it? Sure, the fact that we long for life after death, for eternal life, doesn't mean that it exists, much like the English poet Matthew Arnold who said, nor does the being hungry prove that we have bread. That is undoubtedly true. The fact that we're hungry doesn't prove that we have bread, but does it not prove that bread, such a thing as bread, exists? Does it not prove that our hunger is supposed to be met? So what is this longing we have for meaning and significance after death, for eternal life? And if we do not now possess immortality, but does it not suggest that we need eternal life? that there's such a thing as eternal life. And the answer to all these questions lies in Easter, Resurrection Sunday, as we also call it, when we celebrate the day when Jesus Christ rose from the day, third day after his death on the cross. So then all that your soul most longs for, the dearest hopes that you have ever held, can be true because and only because Jesus rose again from the dead. As one theologian, Yaroslav Pelikan, says, if the resurrection is not true, then nothing else matters. Because it all ends in death. When the sun burns away, there will be no one left to remember anything we ever did. But he also says, if the resurrection is true, then nothing else matters. Because that would be the most important thing, the thing that matters most. And John teaches from this passage that Jesus died and rose again so that by believing that he is the Son of God, we might receive eternal life. That's his very purpose for writing this book. And he demonstrates this by recording several witnesses who saw and believed. So first is himself, and then Mary, the disciples, and Thomas. And he writes all of this so that ultimately, the the future generations, those who do not see, might believe that's the purpose of him recording these witnesses who saw and believed. So that's the outline we will follow as we go. So, first, John, he sees and believes. Verse one with me says, On the first day of the week, uh, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. So, that's, that's first character we encounter is Mary, although this will talk first about John. Uh, and it's remarkable that even though Jesus rose again from his from death on the third day every single gospel writer notes that it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. They do that intentionally to point to the fact that Jesus makes all things new. The first day of the week, that's when Jesus rose from the dead, and it's in Jesus that we have hope. And that's why Christians, even though most of the early Christians were Jews, who had for centuries been worshiping on the Sabbath on a Saturday, they transformed that practice and started worshiping on a Sunday to commemorate that. So that's the significance of that. And, uh, re- and read the rest of the verse 1 with me. So now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So Mary Magdalene was one of the faithful devotees of Jesus, and uh, she had seen previously where he was laid. So he, she, as soon as the Sabbath is over, as the light is coming back, uh, she goes to the tomb. But it says that she goes still while it was still dark, right? And it notes that because John uses the motif of light and darkness, as we have seen over and over again, to indicate spiritual state. She does not yet know that Jesus has risen from there. She does not yet understand the meaning of Jesus' death. And so she's still in darkness. So she, while it was still dark, she approaches. And the other gospel writers note that there were other women that came with Mary. Uh, they came to, to anoint, uh, to, to put spices uh, on his body. Uh, and, uh, but John intentionally mentions only Mary Magdalene, uh, probably uh, because he wants to highlight the fact uh, that she was the first witness of the resurrection. Uh, the other gospel writers also note that by always naming Mary Magdalene first, and, uh, and they're probably coming and wondering how they were going to move that large stone that Pilate had placed there to guard the tomb. And the Roman guards, and, and, and so they have fears, and they're coming and approaching the tomb. But when they come, they, she sees that Mary Magdalene sees that the tomb, the stone, has already been rolled away. And there, that could mean only one thing. Because John told us in chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus was buried in a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. He told us that intentionally to to suggest that, you know what, if if the body's missing from there, it could mean nothing else. There was only one body in that tomb. So if Jesus is missing from there, that means Jesus is gone, not someone else. Uh, And so it says in verses 2 to 4, She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John outruns Peter uh, and reaches the tomb first, and their reactions are recorded in the following verses, 5 to 9. the dead. So it's a cave tomb, and so they stoop in. John first gets a stoop in, but he doesn't go in. But Peter, as we know from his character, that's portrayed throughout the Gospels, he's the brash one. He runs right in and to see what's in there. To see what's in there. Uh, and uh, when they go, they see the linen cloth still there, and uh, the face cloth. It, it, it's, it's folded up by its side. So that's an indication that this was not a grave robbery. Right? If they did, they would not take the time to remove the linen cloth from the body that they're trying to steal. And in fact, that would be the main thing they would want because the linen cloth with the expensive spices are what you would go for in a, in a grave robbery during this time. That's not what happened. It also doesn't mean that the Romans moved his body right? because if they did, they would similarly not leave the linen spice there. They, w- they would have to do it somewhere else. Why would they do that? right? And so that's why John includes that detail. And, and the this, this specific detail that the face cloth was folded up in a place by itself. That's an intentional contrast with Lazarus, who was raised by Jesus earlier in the Gospel of John from the dead. But Lazarus was was raised to mortal life, to, to, to be sick and to die again. But Jesus was raised to resurrection life, immortality, eternal life. And so there is a difference, because Lazarus, when he was raised by Jesus, it says he came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with the cloth, and so that Jesus had to tell other people to unbind him and let him go. But Jesus, in contrast, rose from the dead. In fact, he was in full possession of himself, in control of himself. He takes the time to fold the facial garment, the cloth, and set it aside, and leaves. It's a sign that someone who had no longer any need of those things, put him aside, and came out of the tomb. And notice verse 9. It says that it explains that up to this point, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So contrary to some people who would argue that the disciples fabricated the story of the resurrection in order to fit their preconceived notions about a Messiah rising from the dead, they had no idea that was what was supposed to happen. Rather, it's the facts, the reality of what happened that shaped and informed their theology, their beliefs, their faith. And historically, the rapid growth of the early church can't be explained apart from an empty tomb, from the resurrection of Christ. The most popular uh, counter-argument is that the claim that disciples stole the body so that they could you know, tell people you know, that's, that Jesus rose from the dead. And Matthew already anticipates this and writes about this in verse chapter 28, 11, 15. He says, the Jewish authorities paid the soldiers who were guarding there when Jesus rose from the dead to lie to the people, saying, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. But that theory is so far-fetched that Matthew doesn't even uh, deign to defend against it. Because if they were sleeping, and, in fact, so soundly asleep that They weren't able to do anything when his disciples came to steal his body. How would they know that it was his disciples, right? I mean, they can't. Moreover, this uh, explanation itself is an unwitting admission of the significant fact of the empty tomb, that it was indeed empty, that they needed to come up with something to explain it and make sense of it. Nor does that explanation make sense of the fact that every single one of Jesus' apostles, save one, John, and save Judas, the betrayer, were martyred, proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. What was in it for them? Why would they perpetuate a lie that they don't even themselves believe? Some other people have suggested that Jesus didn't actually die, but only appeared to die, and after... Three days in in the tomb, he was resuscitated. He came back to life. Not only is that medically highly implausible, but that also defies common sense. Think about a Christ who came out of the tomb enfeebled, scarred, literally half dead, and then imagine that same man convincing all his followers that he is the glorious son of God who rose from the dead. It just doesn't fly. No one would believe him. The disciples were confronted with the fact of the empty tomb of the resurrected Christ, which then shaped and advanced their understanding of how Scripture foretold the resurrection. They didn't invent it. What do you make of the empty tomb? The reality of resurrection confronts us today still in the worldwide celebration of Easter. I urge you today to do not leave this place without having come to a decisive answer on that question. What do you make of the empty tomb? So John saw and believed, right? Now we turn to Mary in verses 11 to 18. Let's read 11 to 13 with me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So all the gospel writers note uh, that there were angels in Jesus' tomb. Uh, Mark and Luke call them men, uh, but that's very consistent with how Old Testament usually describes angels. They describe angels as coming in form of men. Uh, and so that's consistent with that. And the, the description that they were in gleaming white garments is always consistent with the description of angels in the Bible. So these are angels uh, that they're talking about. And then perhaps seeing another person, maybe in her peripheral vision just behind her, Mary turns around and sees Jesus. But she doesn't yet recognize him, according to verse 14. Now, this may be due to the fact that it was still dark, like it said before. Or it may be the fact that she was crying, as as the passage tells us, and her eyes were still blurry. Or it may just be that she just didn't expect to see him. I mean, all of us are familiar with that experience, right? When you see someone out of context, you don't expect to see that person, so you don't recognize that person. Maybe, you know, it says you're vacationing in a foreign country, and then you see your neighbor there, and you're like, oh, you just run right past them. You don't recognize that person, right? Or your friend whom you're only familiar with in informal context and you see them all of a sudden at work and formally dressed and you don't recognize that person, right? It could happen to all of us. So here, Mary doesn't yet recognize Jesus. So she says, so Jesus says to her, verses 15 to 16, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, "Mary," and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, "Rabboni," which means "teacher." So, as soon as Jesus utters her name, Mary, probably in the same way he has always said it, she immediately recognizes him, and and the despair and sadness that had weighed her down is transformed into amazement and joy, and she addresses Jesus as she always has, "Teacher." And Jesus has said in John chapter 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So here, Mary is one of the sheep that belong to him. Jesus is the shepherd. So when she hears his voice, she responds and follows him. She believes. I believe he's calling some of you this morning. I pray that you'll recognize his voice and follow him also. But this sweet reunion uh, is short-lived, because Jesus says to her in verse 17 do not cling to me for i have not yet ascended to the father but go to my brothers and say to them i am ascending to my father and your father to my god and your god jesus is telling mary that there's no need for her to hold on to him to cling to him because he's not about to just permanently disappear he's not yet ascended to the father Instead, he wants her to go and tell others because that now is a time to spread the news because he's still here and still he's going to appear to his disciples. So he gives her a mission, but go to my brothers and say to them, this is not referring to his biological brothers, but to the apostles, which you see from what Mary does. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so verse 18 continues. Mary Magdalene went And announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And by doing so, Mary becomes the very first witness of the resurrected Jesus. And the gospel writers record this because it's true, in spite of the fact that according to the Jewish law of the time, women uh, were not allowed to bear testimony in court. Their witnesses were considered invalid. Yet, notwithstanding that, they make mary magdalene the very first witness because she was and is not that so in fitting with what god does throughout history he's always taking the marginalized the weak and he uses them for his purposes and so mary like john sees and believes and begins to spread the word So she goes to witness to the disciples, and then Jesus himself appears among them. Read verses 19 and 20 with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Here and later in verse 26, John specifically notes that the doors were locked when Jesus came and stood among them. And that's to highlight the miraculous nature of Jesus' appearance, his resurrected body. He somehow walked through a locked door or he materialized somehow in the room. And so that's, that's not a mortal body. This is a resurrected body. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So it's a foretaste of what we will all experience as, as Jesus' followers will experience uh, when Jesus returns. So that's the resurrected body. And as he stands among them, Jesus says to them, Peace be with you. When he has said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So they, again, see. There's a theme here, a recurring theme of seeing and believing and Jesus pronounces God's peace over them. He does it again in verse 21. So at one level, uh, peace is simply the greeting. Uh, that it's a typical Jewish greeting, shalom. Uh, but it's invested with much deeper meaning here after Jesus' death and resurrection. Because shalom means wholeness, not just the peace, you know, not having conflict, but a wholeness, uh, a sense of fe- fitting very snugly to God's purpose and order and plan. That's that wholeness that comes from... Being, being fit into God's plan so that's what the peace, word peace conveys and it's not without forethought that Apostle Paul in all 13 of his New Testament letters uses grace and peace as the greeting for the believers have you ever had a sense that something is amiss in this world that something about you about the world around you is off kilter is your conscience uneasy? Do you feel a spiritual emptiness? Right. The answer to all of that lies in Jesus when you accept him as your Savior and Lord and entrust your life to him, his status before God the Father becomes yours. His righteousness becomes yours, and as a result of that, you have peace with God. It's the peace that surpasses understanding. That's unshakable. the wholeness of sense of fitting snugly into God's order and purposes. And apart from that peace with God, we cannot have peace with one another. Jesus continues to speak to his disciples in verses 21 to 22. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The word send is one of the most frequently used words in the entire gospel, and it captures the idea that Jesus is the sent one of the Father. John three seventeen said that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, and we are sent on this same mission by Jesus, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so Jesus had prayed this prayer for his disciples uh, in chapter 17, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Christians, those who follow Jesus, are graciously involved and invited into this divine chain, his mission. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. And in that power of the Holy Spirit, the church, the body of believers is sent out to proclaim that message of salvation. So then Christians are by definition missionaries. The word missionary comes from the Latin word that means the exact same thing as the Greek word here that means sent. That's who we are. There's no alternative to be a Christian is to be a missionary. And because of this mission, urgency, not complacency should characterize a Christian life. We're not saved so that we can selfishly coast for the rest of our lives, contented with our own salvation. But we are saved and sent so that we can selflessly announce and reflect the good news of Jesus Christ to others. And what's the goal of all this? The salvation of all those whom God has given to his son in this world. Of course, we should do all that we can to love our neighbors and serve them. Jesus commands that, but if it ends there, if we don't proclaim the message of salvation, then our mission is incomplete, and we have been faithless to Jesus. Our word and works must lead those in the world to salvation, not merely greater harmony or equality, but salvation, eternal life, that's the goal. Then knowing that this mission is too much for us to handle in our own strength, Jesus breathes on them and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This reference to the Holy Spirit, much like the water that poured out from Jesus' side during his crucifixion, is a symbolic preview of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus repeatedly connects the descent of the Holy Spirit to the ascent of the Son of God. When Jesus ascends, that's when the Holy Spirit descends to his believers. And Jesus breathing on his disciples is reminiscent of God's creation in Genesis 2, 7, when God creates man and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, thus life, thus making him a living creature. It's also, uh, it recalls uh, prophet Ezekiel's experience in the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel 37, verse 9, where God says to him, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And the breath of God there in that instance revitalizes the valley of dry bones and turns them into a living army. So this breath of God that that is has generated power, it creates life in those two instances. And what Jesus does here by breathing has regenerated power. He recreates life, imparts spiritual life, eternal life. It's not the full impartation of the Spirit, yet we know that from Acts 2. And Jesus instructs his disciples in Acts 1, wait for the promise of the Father, because then they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So this is instead a foretaste. It's, It's a preview and a promise that the fullness of the Spirit that is to come. And John includes it here to make sure we understand that connection between the Son's ascent and the Spirit's descent. I hope you understand the staggering implications of this right because the holy spirit is the third person in the triune god right this means that we are not only sent by god we're sent with god right the spirit of god enlivens us and empowers us for mission and because of that our mission is destined for success because the spirit of god goes with us that should alleviate any fear we might have that prevents us from telling people about jesus This also obviates any use of force or manipulation on our part. The salvation of the world doesn't depend on us. Not on our eloquence, not on our persuasiveness. It depends on God's power. So since the church, which is the family of believers, goes with the Holy Spirit on Christ's mission, it's no wonder then that Jesus says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Notice the words forgiven and withheld are in passive form. Uh, and uh, if you were to translate that a little more literally and woodenly, it would read like this If you forgive the sins of, sins of any, they have been forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it has been withheld. Those words are very carefully put in that perfect uh, passive form to indicate that it's not we, the Christians, who hold the power of forgiveness, but it's God. He's the one that forgives. He's the offended party in every sin. So it's only the person who was offended that can forgive the offense. So only God can forgive sin. So he's the one that forgives. But nevertheless, we can't deprive the conditional statement of its true force because it does say, if you that's us, His, because the disciples are the representatives of the church, the foundation of the church. If we forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If we withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That means as God's representatives and as those who have been indwelled by the Spirit of God, when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, some will believe and accept unto salvation others will reject it f- unto damnation and because of that are the power that we hold in proclaiming the gospel we become the the the, the kind of the uh, the sifting uh, force that separates those two people we did, so that if we forgive the sins of any we, we announce forgiveness of those who believe in jesus then it is forgiven them god has forgiven them And when we say that that person has not been forgiven because of their refusal to believe, it is withheld. It has been withheld by the Father. What an unspeakable privilege, a heavy responsibility. So let us go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ liberally, widely, incessantly, so we can pronounce the forgiveness of God over as many people would repent and believe. So far, we've seen how John saw and believed, how Mary saw and believed, and how the disciples saw and believed. But it turns out that there was one disciple who was missing from that group. And so now we're going to turn to Thomas in verses 24 to 29, how he comes to see and believe. But uh, Thomas uh, will not easily be convinced. We find out here that he's a skeptic So if you are of a skeptical bent, you have a kinder spirit here in Thomas. Right? He's a highly logical thinker who relies on his senses and his own rational assessment of situations. So, and so he's, I mean, you see, we saw this early in John 14 because Jesus told his disciples, hey, you know I'm going to the Father and you know the, where I'm going. And it was Thomas who interjected and said, uh, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Right. I mean, so you know, the, his, you could see his character from that, right? This is Thomas. So that's the kind of man that Thomas is. It doesn't matter to him that the rest of the disciples are saying, "We've seen the Lord." He's like, "No, unless I see him, I'm not believing this," right? So as as modern, and this is helpful for us because as modern people living in the midst of great scientific advances and progress and reason, we sometimes think that Christianity. <laughs> It's, it's no longer possible, to, it's possible for us to believe because it, it was for you know, credulous people, gullible people back then who didn't have these resources that were so superstitious and ready to believe in miracles and the resurrection of Christ. But the story of Thomas reminds us that in every generation, there is a share of skeptics. They have their own share of skeptics. That's what that kind of thinking betrays what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. People in the first century didn't believe in miracles either. People in the first century didn't believe that people rose from the dead either. That's why this is so remarkable. That's why this turns them into believers. I've shared this with some of you before, but I want to invite you to put on a skeptic's hat with me for a moment. Think for a moment about the central claim of Christianity that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead as proof of that victory over sin and death. Now, that is a patently falsifiable claim, right? uh, Author Michael Patton, C. Michael Patton, writes in his book, Now That I'm a Christian, that Christianity is the world's most falsifiable religion, right? To illustrate, consider Islam. In order to become a Muslim, one must trust in a private encounter that Muhammad had with God, which is historically unverifiable. Consider Buddhism and Hinduism, whose central tenets are a philosophy rather than a historical event rooted in time and space. So there's no objective way to test those either. Consider every religion you can think of besides Christianity. It either begins with, one, a private dream about God, or two, a private angelic encounter about God, or three, a private idea and philosophy about God, and then this one person tells everybody else about this private experience. And then consider Christianity. Begins with, one, a public ministry. Christ was killed publicly. It's recorded by Jewish historians and Roman historians. Two, Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. And three, Christ publicly showed himself to the public. And five, or four, the public told everyone what they saw. It's a radically different beginning. If you want to start a call, that's the last thing you want to do. To say that, you know what, I'm going to die and rise again on the third day. Because that's not going to work. You're going to die and not come back from the dead. And your religion is dead right before it starts. But that's exactly what Jesus did. The church grew. Now, the largest religion in the world. Why? Because Jesus did rise from the dead. And this is the most important and compelling proof among all Jesus' signs. So read verses, So that's why he says verses 26 to 28. Eight days later, so that would again be the first day of the new week, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side, do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It's no easy thing for a faithful Jew to call a man my Lord and my God. For thousands of years, Jews have believed that there is no God but Yahweh. But the reality of the resurrected Lord Jesus overrides his skeptical instincts and theological qualms. And he's compelled to conclude by that experience that Jesus really is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so rightly, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And what a God to profess for us. The God of all creation became a man, a creature. So that he can live the fallen life that we have lived. And to die as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this drastic gesture of love that Jesus has shown is forever stamped on him because he is incarnate forever. He's forever going to be man, fully God and fully man. And his resurrected body is forever going to have the marks, the scars of his crucifixion. Edward Shilito, a a Christian minister in England who lived during the First World War, writes about this Jesus. The poem is entitled Jesus of the Scars. It reads, The Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are have no fear. Show us thy scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Our Lord Jesus alone has wounds. Therefore only he, of all the gods, can speak to our wounds, our suffering, our sins, our life. Our Lord Jesus alone became a man, so he alone can speak to our humanity. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, so he can empathize with us. And therefore, Jesus is uniquely worthy of our allegiance and love. Who do you say this Christ is? This is the most important question that you will ever have to answer in your life. It's not enough that Christ is someone else's God or Lord. He, is he your Lord? Is he your God? Because Thomas's profession is personal. He's my Lord and my God. It's easy to be tyrannized by the urge and things that distract us and demand our immediate attention and neglect the things that are of eternal importance, things that are most significant. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Make a decision today. This leads us to my final point this morning. John bears witness to what he himself, along with Mary, the disciples, and Thomas saw and believed so that we who cannot see might still believe. So Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus foresees a time when people, he will be permanently ascended to the Father's right hand and we will no longer be able to see as these disciples did. And so thinking of that, he says, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And we belong to this generation. So for us, faith comes from not seeing but hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But this doesn't mean that our faith cannot be as strong as that of the first disciples. It doesn't mean that our experience of the joy of being having a relationship with God is any less or inferior to that. As 1 Peter 1, 8-9 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. That's the experience that we all know, all the Christians know. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you're a believer, you know what that means. You've experienced it. That's true. But why does Jesus pronounce a special blessing over those who have not seen and and yet have believed? over and against those who have seen and believed. It's because God is pleased with and honored by our faith. Our faith in God's word, what he has told us, shows, us, shows that we think that God is reliable. Right? It expresses our confidence in him. Right? As any counselor would say or any relationship expert would say, trust is the bedrock of any healthy relationship. It's the same in our relationship with God. When we lack confidence in others so that we do not believe what they tell us unless we say we see it for ourselves, we betray our lack of esteem and regard for them, don't we? And that's why Hebrews 11, verse 1 and verse 6 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What that means is faith is the MO, the the modus operandi of the Christian. When we act in faith, we glorify God by expressing our trust in him. And when we act faithlessly, we are distrusting God and relying on ourselves. All Christian obedience, therefore, is born of faith. We will not conduct ourselves with integrity in every aspect of our lives unless we believe that God is always watching. He sees everything. We will not forsake our pride and and legalism and self-righteousness unless we believe that God has saved us by His grace. We will not consider others better than ourselves and look to others' interests, not just our own, unless we believe that this is what Christ did for us and that God sees us and will reward us. When we do not believe that God's plan for us is better than our own plans, we are doubting God's love for us and failing to love him. This is why it pleases God when we believe even when we have not seen. It requires more faith. So Jesus says, blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. And when you believe, You see. John wrote about it this in chapter 11, verse 40. He told Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So Augustine, a fourth century Christian theologian, wrote about this reality. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. So John writes in verses 30 to 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs include everything that he did to authenticate his true identity as the Son of God. So it includes his miracles, but chiefly among them all is his death and resurrection and ascension. It's in believing that, in believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we have life in His name, eternal life. If you are already a Christian, I want to ask you this morning, are you taking subsequent steps of faith in your life? Because all Christian obedience is born of faith, and we cannot please God apart from faith. Are you choosing the way of faith in God rather than relying on your own works? Are you trusting in God? Or are you trusting in yourself? That's why often the the best path for the Christian is not always the easy path. It's not always the path that we clearly see, but it's a path that requires the most faith because it pleases Him. If you are not yet a Christian, are you ready to take that first initial step of faith? Maybe at this point, you're wondering, oh man, how much faith do I need exactly? <laughs> right. uh, I hope this is a helpful illustration for you. January 1st, 1914. That's when the very first commercial plane took its passengers and transported them from St. Petersburg, Russia, to Tampa, Florida. Imagine two individuals who are, uh, have the amazing privilege of being the first passengers on the plane. One of them... Is very confident in the way this machine was built. Uh, he's relaxed and calm. He's, he, he's downright giddy at times. So he's, he sits and he's confident. He enjoys the book, whatever he, he brought, and he lands safely uh, in the destination. Uh, imagine another person. He is fearful. In fact, he he considers this a great privilege and honor, so he wants to do it, and so he does get on the plane, but the whole time, he's shaking in his boots, afraid. In fact, he squeals out loud when it starts to take off, right? Let me ask you, does that person still get to the destination? Of course. Because... Them being transported to the destination was not contingent on the intensity of their faith, but on the reliability of that plane. So what mattered was that they had enough faith to get on that plane. That's what mattered. Becoming a Christian is similar. Our salvation does not depend on the intensity of our faith, but on the utter dependability and infallibility of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So just as safe passage is guaranteed for those two passengers so long as they boarded the plane, salvation is guaranteed for you as long as you're willing to entrust your life to Jesus and get on that plane and live your life as a Christian, abiding in his word and seeking to obey him and all that he calls you to. That's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And when we do that by believing, we will have life in his name. Jesus died and rose again so that by believing that he is the Son of God, we might receive eternal life. My prayer this morning is all of you, that none of you will miss that opportunity, but that we'll be able to enjoy the eternal life he won for us when he resurrected from the dead. Let's pray together. do believe, help our unbelief. Faith itself is a gift from you, so we ask for that precious gift for all of us, so we may continue to live a life of faith, depending on you, relying on your work on the cross, your salvation that you won for us, at no cost to us, but at the eternal cost of the death of the Son of God. Oh, Lord, capture our imagination, our hearts, our love. There's nothing more beautiful than what you have done for us. And we love you. We want to follow you. Thank you for this wonderful day we get to celebrate your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.